welcome to the Rob Burgess Show. I am, of course, your host, Rob Burgess. On this, our 234th episode, our guest is Gene Faisler. Gene Faisler is a public historian, commentator, and professor of American Studies at the University of Delaware. Her books include Driven Out, The Forgotten War Against Chinese Americans, Rebecca Harding Davis, Origins of Social Realism, and The Utopian Novel in America. She lives in Washington, D.C. Her latest book, California, A Slave State, was published June 27, 2023, by Yale University Press. And now on to the show. I'm reading your book, obviously, but if you, for people that don't know who you are, wouldn't just mind introducing yourself. Thank you. Thank you, Rob. Thank you for having me. I'm Jean Felzer, and my most recent book, which came out just a couple of weeks ago, is California, a Slave State. Right. And um, it was a really interesting topic to me personally, not just because I really enjoy history, but also because I lived in Northern California along with my wife for three years. Uh, We lived in uh, Ukiah in Mendocino County, of course, and you actually even begin the book with a story from that area. Um, I don't know if you want to maybe just tell a little bit of that story just to start it off with since you start the book that way, but right off the bat, I recognized, (laughs) obviously, the places and uh, things you were talking about there, so. Yes, it's it's a painful story, and... It's, I'm speaking to you tonight from Humboldt County. Oh, gosh. So okay. Wow. How, how, is, how is it up there these days? I, I miss it. <laughs> I miss it a lot. Um, well, I'm right where the Redwoods meet the coast, uh, up in Big Lagoon, about seven miles north of Trinidad. Oh, man. And California is very much part of my home. I was born in Los Angeles went to public school, I went through the public schools, and I did my BA and MA at Berkeley. My first teaching job was at Humboldt State up here, and then I taught at UC San Diego for about eight or nine years before I moved to Washington. Mm -hmm. But I kept a little cabin here where the Redwoods meet the sea, Mm. and this is where I wrote this book and researched a great deal of it. So... Mm -hmm. California is very much who I see myself. I'm a Californian, and I love the state. I yearn for it when I'm away, and I really see its very deep and flawed history. In the story you wanted to talk about Mm -hmm. that opens my book, I also see incredible resistance and resilience and really tough people who struggled to understand and be surprised by the slavery that they found themselves in, especially the Native Americans who didn't necessarily see it coming. There was no history of slavery within the tribes in California. Occasionally, uh, there was a captive in a war or a dispute, but California did not begin its six to 12,000 year old history as a slave state. The story I open my book with is the story of a Wailaki girl. Her name was Zixa. It's a very 
guttural sounding language. It's a dead language. There are apparently no more indigenous, original, Wailaki-speaking people. There are efforts made to save the language. In 1850, within a few months of California becoming a state, California passes its very first law. The law was called the Act for the Government and the Protection of the Indian in 1850. With that act, California legalized the kidnap, the forced indenture, the sale of Native Americans. At the time, and author Ben Madley writes about this so brilliantly, there was a genocide happening in California. With the gold rush and with the end of the missions, there was the assumption that California was empty, that the land was empty, that there were no people, and people believed that there was no workforce here. The genocide run by the American military, by the US military, was sweeping across the state, particularly in the northern half of the state, to burn Native American villages slaughter the men because they believed they were the warriors and were more powerful, that sent hundreds, probably thousands, of Native American women and children on the road. They were vagrants. Now we would call them refugees. Many were taken into the military forts that were built for the genocide. Um, Many were forced onto the new, really remote reservations. The U.S. refused the reservation system. There were 18 treaties to try and give some land to Native Americans. Congress rejected all of them. So Northern California was in the midst of pogroms, of purges all over the state. In, at the northern end of the Eel River, which Rob, you may know, Alder mm -hmm. Point, it's very close to Ukiah, mm -hmm. inland from Ukiah. Yeah. And at Alder Point, there was a summer Wailaki village. Because it was in the middle of the state, it came last. And in about 1861, after the genocide was really nearing its end, the military built a tiny fort, and the plan was to clear Central California land for settlers. They swooped down into Six's village, and they slaughtered the men. The book begins with a dream vision that her grandfather has, that white men were going to come and kill them. All of the men are slaughtered, and Sixa and her mom are captured. They're taken to this nearby fort that was built just to do the clean sweep of Native Americans along the eel. And she escapes with her mother. She escapes over and over again. She is captured and sold over again, taken back to the fort. But this little girl who starts out as 10 years old 
finds her way back through the redwoods, along the riverbeds, always to find her mom, always to find her mother, who's being held captive with her younger sister at the fort. She is tortured, she is raped, she is forced to become a nanny, this child nanny to little kids, to a baby. And each time she flees, her skills as having been raised in that village and her Native American skills help her survive. She knows how to lick clean water from the underside of the ferns. And as you may know, I suspect you've spent a fair bit of time in the redwoods. Mm-hmm. It's The redwoods are covered with a fern forest. Mm-hmm. She knows how to hide in a log when the soldiers come looking for her or for her mother. And she hides in this big, rotten redwood log to stay away from the soldiers. She is always captured. She finds other Native American kids also on the run in the woods. There are times they're able to find safety for six or eight months at a time. Native Americans find each other on the run and hide out together in the woods on Mount Lassic, and she survives. She is forced into a marriage. She loses her name, which is horrible. She's renamed Lucy Young. And when she's 91 years old, so now we're in the 1930s, in the Depression, under the Roosevelt administration, there was a project to record histories. And Sixa finds a biologist and an anthropologist and walks a long way. She's 91 years old. And she says to this botanist, anthropologist, who I believe is paid by Krober from the University of California, Berkeley, to collect bones and pottery and stories and languages. She tells this woman, you need to write down my story. And so in about 10 or 15 pages, she's illiterate. The botanist transcribes her stories She tells the story of the law, of the burning of her village, of the slaughter of the men of her village. She's a witness to a mass slaughter of some of the surviving men of her village at one of the reservations. And she's very clearly talking about what happened to her and how she used all of her skills as a little girl to survive. She loses her sister, who is also sold, sold into slavery, and she never sees her sister again. She finds her mother and in her later years takes her mother to live with her up in Hayfork um, in the mountains. And she finally has a happy marriage and lives and insists that her story be transcribed. She ends her story. White people need to hear my story. This is history. This is truth. I seen it myself. Hmm. Yeah. 
And I just uh, was embarrassed that I did not know that history, I guess. I mean, I, I had a vague understanding of, of course, the Native American genocide, but nothing like you describe in the book. And I, I was completely unaware of, of the how deep it was. I guess because when you look at the map of who was on which side during the Civil War, you see California. Okay, that's blue, so that's unions, though they're good, not having slaves. All right, good. Got that. That's pretty much, <laughs> that was the extent of my understanding of <laughs> of this. Not, of course, thinking deeper, deeper about it in terms of the Native Americans, which, as you, you point out, were not even considered full human beings at this point. So um, There's nothing to feel guilty about. I mean, when I think about how blessed I was with the education that I had, went to a terrific high school. I went through Berkeley. I studied with the best. I was a double major in English and history. So I read Frederick Douglass, with one of the grandpas of American studies, Henry Nash Smith. I studied American slavery with Kenneth Stamp, the author of The Peculiar Institution, who was the first historian to really talk about the daily life of enslaved people in the South. And I didn't learn any of this. I didn't know that African-Americans enslaved on the plantations or marched across the plains or through the jungles of Panama for the gold rush by plantation owners. I didn't know about the genocide. I didn't at all understand the brutality of the mission system where local um, tribal people were brought in sometimes with a rope, you know, hung across their neck for conversion and to dig the new fields and orchards of California mm -hmm. after Junipero Serra crosses the border in San Diego. I didn't know until I wrote this book that there were Indian boarding schools in California. Mm. And when I learned that, I didn't know that there was slavery at the boarding schools. I heard that kids were forced to go to the boarding schools. The United States Congress passes a law that says every Indian kid is entitled to an education, but there were no public schools on the reservation. And it was good for go for the Indian boarding schools to snag these children strip them of their native clothing, dress them in, um, the boys wore scratchy wool uniforms, the girls wore little white shifts. They almost looked like the shifts that we see in enslaved people on plantations. Mm -hmm. And the boarding schools had what they called the outing program. The first time I read the word outing programs, that's not what outing means to us now to be outed. Mm -hmm. But each of the boarding schools had an outing matron and she was a slave broker. She would sell these children or hand them off. The boys worked in the orange groves and some of them were shipped as far away 
Nebraska, Nebraska to work for free and dig in and plow in the beet fields in Nebraska. The girls were sent to work in hotels, sometimes only one or two girls at a time. Some of them were sent to work in um, as domestic servants because there was no real working class in California at the time. And so turning to Native Americans or African-Americans or Chinese girls was a way to create a, a working class and a field labor body of people for this new, what was presumed to be a raw state. So don't feel guilty or else I'm going to feel super guilty because I <laughs> actually intended to learn this stuff. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah, I mean, I, I had, yeah, like guilt doesn't get us anywhere. In the book, you do draw parallels between um, then and now and how slavery never really went away, only changed forms. So can you talk a little bit about that portion of the book? Sure. And I also, not only did slavery change forms, but I just want us to keep hold of the thread that slave revolts changed forms with it. Mm. There was no slavery that came down that ensnared the people of California, either the people who were indigenous to California, the people like the African-Americans or Chinese girls who were kidnapped from the port cities of Guangdong, Canton, and brought here in padded crates on ships to become enslaved prostitutes in Chinatown and to start some of all the rural Chinatowns across California, some because they ran away, some because they were bought by their customers, some who believed their customers who just, there were no ch other Chinese women and they wanted Chinese wives and families. So Frederick Douglass uses the image of the hydra-headed monster for slavery. And that image is the thread of my book. Frederick Douglass calls slavery a hydra-headed monster you cut off one head and two grow in its place. And that threads, that monster slithered through our beautiful state, our bountiful state, and kept shape-shifting, kept changing itself to accommodate the economic demands and the sexual demands of this growing state where there was no working class, where initially there were very few white women or Chinese women or African-American women. And with the slaughter of Native American women by disease, by the genocide, um, by rape, by being sold over and over and over again, the population of Native Americans shrinks in dire ways. The numbers are very confusing. Their numbers are inconsistent. People agree that when Junipero Serra crosses the border in 1769 at San Diego, 
to launch the first mission, the first of the chain of 21 missions. There were about 310,000 Native Americans, indigenous people, whose people had lived on this land for between, as I said, 6,000 and 12,000 years. At the end of the genocide, and again, the numbers are inconsistent, um, there were only surviving 16 to 30,000 Native Americans in the state. To go from 310,000 to say 30,000 Native Americans in the state is a horrific number of slaughter, of genocide. Mm. So slavery keeps reproducing itself to create profit, to create a working class, to create field workers, domestic workers, prostitutes, wives. Um, with San Quentin, suddenly there are using that's the birth of the carceral state in California. San Quentin prison is housing factories where unpaid convicts are forced to stand for 12 hours a day at a piece of machinery or at a loom working unpaid and not allowed to talk. I know I could not stand for 12 hours mm -hmm. and not squirm. And I certainly couldn't stand for 12 hours and not talk. Just <laughs> not me. Mm. And the tortures, the brutal, imaginative, creative violence that was used against the convicts to make them obey, to produce furniture for profit for the private contractor who owned the rights to the labor of all of the prisoners in San Quentin were the tortures, if they spoke, if they disobeyed, um, were sort of unthinkable and even creatively evil. They invented or they borrowed from East Coast prisons waterboarding, they would fill a bathtub with water and then stick electric prods in it to force the prisoner to have seizures. They would hang prisoners who spoke while they worked unpaid with the profit going, filtering through either the warden or this contractor, all to the benefit of the people who were running either the state or the state's private industry, or soon agribusiness. Mm. So slavery evolves until we get to modern human trafficking. And California, I would argue, is still a slave state. I think we have to be trained to notice it. But we are surrounded by people who benefit us, who are not free people. Mm. If we go into a motel and there is a woman from Asia, likely, or Latin or South America, who's making our bed, the chances are she may be trafficked. There's an active sex trafficking now on the internet. Mm. You don't necessarily people see people soliciting from street corners. 
They can do it more privately on the web. If you see a young girl standing at a truck stop, she is vulnerable or has been trafficked if she's flagging someone down. From foster houses in Eureka, children are being trafficked out of foster care to alleged families who will take in a pile of kids to be paid by the state to raise them and then to sell them. There are people being seized and taken from detention centers, immigrants from the new immigrant detention centers and being sold because this state still needs a working class. There is trafficking going up in the marijuana, going on in the marijuana grows. Mm -hmm. Humboldt County is part of the quote Emerald Triangle, mm -hmm. where some of the most dense and intense um, cannabis is grown. It's now legal, but there's no working class. There's no field worker class. Lately, marijuana sort of tanked economically here because it's legal in what, 37 states right now. Mm -hmm. It's even legal in the District of Columbia. But before that, there was a desperate need for field workers. And so I believe, I know that there are trafficked workers up in the marijuana grows in Humboldt County. So something that I believe should be legal is extremely problematic. Mm -hmm. I was a reporter at the Ukiah Daily Journal for, okay. for two years. So I, I'm very familiar with everything you're saying is absolutely true and, and more. But yeah, it, it like we said, it, it never really went away. It changed forms. But uh, in terms of the carceral state, you know, I really what opened my mind first to that was the documentary 13th, if you've seen that. I have um, not. Oh, it's it's great. It's just it's about the same stuff you're you're talking about in terms of the Thirteenth Amendment. Just basically says that slavery didn't go away as long as you're incarcerated, basically, and it just changed forms and uh, it draws the same kind of connections that you're that you were talking about. I'd, I'd recommend it. I'm I'm sure you know everything <laughs> in it already, being who you are, but I I did not. <laughs> I do so, not. I am um, learning as I go and as I talk about this book every single time because this is, we're surrounded by this mm -hmm. yeah, and everybody right. learned different bits of the history um the 13th amendment is in fact very problematic and the yes. pressure to change it i don't see the pressures being strong enough to change it soon but it says slavery is abolished in mm -hmm. the united states quote, except for punishment of a crime. Yep. It's a two-part amendment. And this language, except for punishment for a crime, punishment for a crime shouldn't be slavery. Mm. And it shouldn't be, it should never be slavery. There are, in the various judicial codes, appropriate and inappropriate punishments for different crimes to keep people safe, to hold people accountable, maybe to help them grow and change. Um, but slavery is not an, ever an appropriate punishment for a crime. In the 19th century, to be held to that kind of labor in San Quentin, and San Quentin prisoners built Folsom Prison, 
which is not far from San Quentin, and did the backbreaking work of crushing stone, of building Folsom Prison, and creating the electrical the dams that would build the Natoma Electrical Company to, you know, to dam up the water that would create the energy when it was released for this private company was built by San Quentin prisons. The most dangerous ones were ultimately sent to Folsom, but initially Folsom and the dams for Natoma were built by San Quentin prison. Mm. You know what the Central Valley, the heat of the summer in the Central Valley feels oh, yeah. like. It's no joke. So this was all part of the early carceral state. And it goes back to that. The permission to do it goes back to except for punishment for a crime. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So I, I will look for the documentary. You yeah, it's it's thinking. great. Yeah, like I said, you, you probably you're, you're probably well aware by now, but it's good. Um, we only have a couple minutes left on the Zoom, it looks like. So um Thank you for taking all this time. I, I feel like we just got started talking and we could talk for a lot longer. If you'd come back sometime, I'd really enjoy it. Um, but um, the one question I always ask at the end is, uh, what music have you been listening to lately? Oh, music has been really important to me in mm-hmm. writing this book. Um, I play the flute. Nice. So I play everything from Bach to Gershwin. And it's actually making music on my own. Um, I I just saw that um, Ingrid Michelson, who I love to listen to, has now got a Broadway play out. So I'm looking forward to hearing that. Um, when I'm here in the woods, actually silence feels, feel, feels very good. A group mm. of Blue Jays have taken over my cabin. so i'm listening to the nastiest screechy bird sounds out there there's nothing romantic about a stellar jay so for me the music i've been listening to um and the music we make up here has been kind of my one of the soul saving as i wrote this very vexed book but i do hope people who listen to your podcast will also tune in and I'd be glad to come back another time. Great. But I hope they turn into the fact that for everything that happened to people in California, there was a revolt of a thousand people at San Quentin, a hundred years ahead of Attica, the strike mm-hmm. at Attica. There was an organized slave revolt at the missions along Santa Barbara, Santa Inez, La Parisima, and that organized slave revolt helped bring an end to the mission system. The mission at San Diego, Junipera Serra's favorite and first mission, was burned to the ground, and the head priest who kidnapped the Kumai people was killed, and the Kumai rescued all their brethren and freed them. And today, victims of human trafficking are escaping. And that's how I conclude my book. So I hope that your listeners, our listeners, <laughs> will tune into the heroic and valiant 
flights for freedom mm -hmm. that happened in California. Absolutely. Well, definitely. Well, um, thank you again. And uh, please hug a redwood tree for me because I cannot. <laughs> I would. I've spent some of the happiest times of my life up, up, up there. So um, thank you again. And I hope to talk to you again soon. Oh, thank you. Stay in touch.